Hello and welcome to Things Musicians Don't Talk About with your hosts Hattie Butterworth and me Rebecca Toll. Within our vibrant musical world it can often feel that the struggles and humanity of the musicians is lost and restricted. Having both dealt in silence with mental, physical and emotional issues, we are now looking for a way to voice musicians' stories, discuss them further and to connect with the many others who suffer like we have. No topic will be out of bounds as we are committed to raising awareness for all varieties of struggle and hope to do so with some fantastic guests along the way. So join me, Hattie and guests as we attempt to bring an end to stigma by uncovering the things musicians don't talk about. Happy September. It's lovely to be coming with another episode for you today. Um, This one has been quite a long while in the making. Um, Laura and I must have spoken almost two months ago now. Um, So it's really exciting to have this episode ready to share with the world because, my goodness, I just remember having this conversation, also listening to it back when I was editing and just feeling like so relieved that there's somebody like this who is so successful but also so humble and so ready to talk openly about her experiences. So today I'm talking with incredible renowned cellist Laura van der Hayden who I'm sure many of you will know or have heard of at least. She won the BBC Young Musician of the Year competition in 2012. She is a cellist. Um, She was born in England to Dutch-Swiss parents. I just can't wait to see what Laura does in the future. And she's just brought so much life to the podcast through, yeah, sharing her story and sharing the last year um, and its ups and downs. Um, And I just can't say thank you enough to her for for being here and being so open with us. So here, without further ado, is my conversation with Laura van der Hayden. Hi, Laura. How are you doing today? Hi, I'm doing good. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. It's okay. It's so exciting. (laughs) Well, I would just love to hear about how everything's going right now. How has this COVID intermission impacted you? And has it changed the way you now think about your performing? Absolutely. So um, I basically stopped playing completely for a couple of months. I can't remember in the UK, there was like a month or two where suddenly some work was possible. So um, I remember feeling incredibly emotional when I first played after the proper big break, which I think was like five months long. Yeah, it's been a really strange time. But honestly, I feel like I've been really lucky in that it was actually really good for me. Well, yeah, I don't know, like every musician, if they've been doing it since they were young, you know, you don't really have a day off as a musician. You know, there's no such thing as weekends. Often there are concerts on weekends mm-hmm. or you have to be practicing on weekends. Um, and it's really hard to sort of separate your day-to-day life with your job. You know, it's just like all mixed into one. Um, and I guess we'll talk more about the feelings of shame and guilt of not like practicing as much as you should do and all of that. Mm. And 
I think for the first time ever, I was sort of released from that. Um, I remember at the beginning of the lockdown, I was still sort of feeling guilty for not practicing. And at some point I just said to myself, like, actually, this is probably maybe the only time in your life where you can just say goodbye to that and say, actually, I'm just going to live without guilt for a bit and just not Mm. practice and just see how I feel as a person without cello in my life um, and then get back to it when I really, really want to. Um, and I did do that and I remember how fun it was to just sit at the cello and play and um, I didn't have that much music with me I think so I ended up you know playing bar suites of course because I'm a cellist and <laughs> that's, that's, like, that's our brand <laughs> that's our brand exactly um, but I just had so much fun um, and you know it didn't happen that often so I don't want to be like yeah I loved exploring music all the time by myself not that but um yeah, so I was actually with my family in, in Spain because my sister moved there a little while ago and um, I got to spend loads of time with my nieces and nephews, which I don't usually. And um, I think it was great for them that I was there because I was happy to, like, I'm a bit of a kid often. So, I, you know, <laughs> we made like um, stop motion, like Play-Doh movies and obstacle courses. And we had a massive boredom list that we made to sort of cope, cope with the endless like days that seemed like you know they needed uh, a lot of entertainment which which kept me entertained as well which was fantastic and I also really enjoyed exploring lots of other music so I would kind of go on these massive YouTube binges of NPR tiny desks and the color show um, and and lots of yeah lots of listening to funk and jazz and and soul and stuff like that so I kind of I didn't live without music in any way but I just experienced it in a slightly different way to how I would normally experience it yeah I also thought a lot about what I want in life and what I want as a musician reflected a lot on how I've been feeling the past years I mean the classic like yeah evaluating my life when I had time to stop and think about it Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know whether I necessarily came up with many answers um, because now sort of coming back to it, there is a slight tendency to just sort of fall back into how it was before the pandemic. Um, But at the same time, I I think I have come quite far in terms of knowing where I want to be and what I want to be doing. Um, And that just sort of obviously is going to take time to actually implement into my life. I guess it's, I mean it, it's it's over quite a long period of time so there's lots to ramble on about but yeah um, but it's so real sorry yeah <laughs> it is it's so real it's kind of like mm. I suppose how so many musicians lived Covid the kind of initial guilt and then the hopefully not for everybody but you know that kind of time of release and acceptance of just like let it let it be you know there's no mm. real pressure nothing to work for so why are we killing ourselves like yeah yeah, I think I think some musicians did take the opportunity to sort of learn things and do things that, yeah, that they wouldn't otherwise have time to do. And I really respect that. And I kind mm. of also at the beginning felt guilty that I wasn't one of those musicians, but I I'm just not. Yeah, <laughs> I do I do everything at the last minute. Um, I've uh I've just started well 
that's another conversation, but I've started my studies at, um, at a new union in Berlin and the academics there aren't, aren't very sort of challenging. Um, and I had sort of one essay that was like 400 words to write and um, it was due by the 1st of July and I still haven't done it. So like, um, no matter how small or big the task, I will always leave it until the last possible minute. And that's just something that I think I have to accept about myself. And um, yeah, so I, it was really good to just let go of that. I mean, I don't want to say I had a big holiday because obviously I think these times have been really like mentally stressful. So um, it's not relaxing as such, but uh, I did definitely benefit from it in lots of different ways. Was there ever a time before um, the lockdown that you kind of did have an extended period of time off or has this been the first one? I actually do think that that is, has been the first one. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I have obviously been on holiday without my instrument, but not more, I think, than two weeks ever, really? possibly. Um, and even in those two weeks, I might sometimes, yeah, feel a bit guilty about not playing. And it's not it's not really that I'm such an intense, like, practiser, because mm-hmm. I definitely am not. Um, but it's, you know, there's always something coming up and um, having to practice for that. And, yeah, and, and as I said, the main thing is that even if, you're not practicing you're sort of thinking that maybe you should be um so yeah if it, it was definitely the first big sort of break for me I, I'd really like to talk now about you know the the BBC competition which is your your big deal mm-hmm. um back to 2012 when you were only 15 you won the BBC Young Musician competition um I watched it lots of people watched <laughs> it it was amazing and what was it like to be 15 have to have reached that level of technical ability, then to be thrown into an environment of, as you say, until the recent lockdown, probably almost nonstop concerts, bookings for concerts, you know, that kind of life. How was it to be that young and suddenly to find yourself in this kind of a life? Yeah, um, it's really funny. I mean, even now, when you sort of talk about it in such detail, I still have this feeling of like, oh, that wasn't me. Or like that experience didn't happen to me. Mm. Um, So I think part of me just really doesn't associate, I don't know, there's any of that, like, I'm not not saying I was a child prodigy because I definitely wasn't, but like, you know, that the things that you associate with someone doing well at a young age, I don't feel applied to me. Like I just, Mm. it doesn't, it doesn't ring true with me somehow. But anyway, yeah, it was, it was definitely a really amazing experience. Um, I think another thing that I, I have a lot in life, and I wonder if that's something that other people do too. Um, I had a lot of support as a kid. Um, you know, my mum helped me with practice a lot. I had really good teachers. Um, I had some people who would like come around and, and coach me and stuff like that. And so I also kind of felt that a lot of my success or the things that I was able to do weren't really my own doing. Like mm. that because I had had so much support and so many people helping me um, that it was like, well, obviously, you know, I can I can play reasonably well because because lots of people have helped me to do it, <laughs> you know. Mm. So um, that's quite an interesting one, because I, I think for a long time I really struggled with like owning my success. Um, and only now that I have, you know, made lots of more, decisions myself and you know 
for example, prepared pieces that I, and I haven't played to anyone and just, you know, gone and played them and things like that, where I feel like actually all of the work that has gone into it has been me on my own. I think that makes it easier for me to accept, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. But, um, so yeah, the preparation for the, for the competition, I remember that um, the plan was just for me to hopefully get through the first round because um, I wasn't even sure that I wanted to be a musician, but obviously, as you know, um, it takes a lot of effort to uh, be a young musician and lots of sacrifices. So um, I remember my mom saying to me, you know, it would be really nice sort of to prove um, that all of this effort has been worth it if you got through the first round, you know, that would be mm. that would be really great. Um, and and so that's that's what happened. And then I kept getting further and further and further. Wow. And yeah. I have to say, I think um at the time, and you know, up until recently, my my last teacher, Leonid Gorokov, was a huge influence, and I think his programming ideas were so mm. genius um, for the whole competition because he, you know, he gave me very substantial pieces to play, interesting, unusual pieces, and then I think the Walton was a real strike of genius from from his point of view, because um, it's not, you know, it wasn't a concerto that was played a lot. Um, it wasn't in any way like a, a childish concerto, you know. Um, and also I completely fell in love with it. It's so magical and the sound world so is so good. special. It's oh really amazing. Yeah. Um, and so I think that choice, to be honest, with with me winning. I remember at the time I wasn't really struggling with performance anxiety in mm. any way. Uh, I mean, obviously I was a bit nervous, but not not in the way that I get nervous now. Um, so I really just enjoyed it. I was so excited to be on stage with an like, amazing professional orchestra with this mm. great conductor in this amazing hall. I was and, and playing a piece that I loved so much. And I, I described the experience of the final as, as flying, which sounds really pretentious, but I, no, I, yeah. I, really, I really felt that way. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, I think it was quite immediate then the, the onset of the anxiety. Um, I think even the next day I was like oh shit (laughs) right like damn I'm in the public eye to some extent now and you know I have something to prove or that's the things that you tell yourself but um of overall the the whole competition experience was extremely positive because the whole Mm. team also the BBC was so lovely and yeah I had a great time. I'm so fascinated by the idea of like because you had so much input it's like you know no it was them it wasn't necessarily me I was very privileged it was all you know all this input was from them and I think that's amazing of you to say but also just fascinating in in those terms but some part of me also doesn't really like the word of prodigy or Mm. talented young child or whatever um because there's this kind of stigma of like peaking too quickly burning out and like I don't know if you know about you know, Yehudi Menuhin kind of said to have had that feeling of, you know, not able to recreate what he used to do because he sort of peaked too quickly, blah, blah, blah. But is this idea of not burnout from success so young? Mm -hmm. Did you experience that at all, do you think? Um, No, it's the short answer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I think one thing that just just to go back to the prodigy idea, Mm -hmm. I think for me, what's associated very strongly with that concept is this like extreme sort of burning hunger 
in a in a child to sort of succeed and to to be really good at their instrument and um you know do loads of scales and practice loads of studies and kind of have this like oh yeah when I was young I used to do 10 hours a day and I think I think maybe because I never went through that that phase or I never had that feeling and yes there were times where you know I would get up at 5 30 in the morning to practice before school but it wasn't really um it was just like a logistical decision because mm. I would be too tired after school like it, it wasn't because I was like oh I need to be successful and like you know so I think that the um I don't feel I, I like meet the criteria of of someone who from a very young age is like this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to mm. do it really well okay um yeah and in terms of the burning out thing um well a couple of couple of things one was that obviously I got some you know I got some good offers um for recording contracts and things like that after winning and I turned them down um because I felt I wasn't ready and I think we were very careful and I say we you know because I'm talking about my whole support network um were very careful with what I took on um in terms of only doing things that I really felt ready for so um yes it was busy but not you know not crazy busy I wasn't flying all over the world in any way um I wasn't taking on gigs that were just too big or too challenging for me at the time we were very conscientious about repertoire and making sure that it wasn't you know playing too much at one time so I think you know yeah it was it was busy but not in a way that meant I would burn out I think the main um the sort of overarching issue of you know reasonable success at that young age is um how you deal with the 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 mental pressure and the the expectation pressure and I think that's something that I'm still trying to sort of um figure out how to deal best with uh but yeah in terms of the actual burning out or or playing too much or being too busy um it was because I turned down opportunities that I felt were were too much for me and I think the scary thing about being a musician who's launched into a career like that is that you feel that those opportunities won't be offered to you again mm. um and to a certain extent that actually is true um you know I haven't been approached by Decca recently <laughs> um, <laughs> and there's still time <laughs> it's that kind of thing of <laughs> this is a really weird analogy isn't it but I I uh when you're offered free food but you're not hungry yeah. you know <laughs> yeah 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 and I, I always accept it but it's like well I don't need this so why am I you know that is such a good analogy actually I love that I don't want it right now Um, but so I don't regret any of those decisions in any way because I knew that it was important to live my life in a way that was long lasting that I could that I could have a slow um but gradual build up of a career because I that's what I wanted and I wanted time to develop fully as an artist yeah it's really interesting you say that because from the outside it has always looked to me you've really appeared to stick to you know stayed very true to yourself throughout and especially with your album release in 2018 that felt incredibly kind of I don't know the right time very personal to you and very like pieces that you had a reason to play and I I really respect that because I can understand the pull and the pressure to be everywhere all the time when you've won a competition like that 
I mean, again, somehow with me, everything comes around to performance anxiety in the end. But for example, taking on a concerto opportunity with an orchestra that's kind of, in a way, not in your league at that age. Um, you know, it's scary enough playing with an orchestra and a conductor and sort of meeting them on the day as a 15-year-old young girl, often in a like very male-dominated space. Maybe the conductor is an older male um, and it's so hard to assert yourself and feel confident. And, um, you know, in that role, you need to be a bit of a leader and that's what's expected of you. And I think I already struggled enough to, to feel like I had something to say in the situations that I chose to do, um, let alone, you know, I, I, I didn't. But if I had, you know, got a, a gig with the Berlin Phil or like mm. the, the LSO or something like that, um, I just would have felt like what you know what am I doing here why am I here um you know why is a 15 year old girl playing with this orchestra like I'm not ready yet you know um and I think that I I'm so glad that I I waited also with the CD because it felt at the time I was like a CD is so permanent you know and I want mm. to put something into the world that I feel comfortable with that I feel proud of and yes now I would play lots of those things differently and you know I'm not necessarily saying that like I adore my playing on that disc but I'm very happy for it to exist in the world because I I yeah I was honest I was um I think very thoughtful with how I approached it and I took my time and I um and that means that I can like rest happy with it you know I mean you've touched on it a few times now and I just I'd love to hear more about performance anxiety and your experience with it, because I did listen to the other podcast you did on it and you mm. went into a lot of depth. And I do urge other people to go and listen to that. I think it was called Inside Performance. The podcast. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because you do give some absolutely spellbinding advice like. Oh, no, but it's like it's just advice. It's sort of not the classic performance anxiety advice, though. It's not kind of like do something breathing and, you know, I don't know, you know, because it is something that's so personal to you. Mm-hmm. I think what you what you kind of based your recovery from it on actually was a change in your whole philosophy. Am I right in saying that? And the way you think about yourself as a musician. Yeah, I, but I would um, urge you not to use the word recovery because I definitely okay. have not recovered. Well, I mean, I, it's like yeah. I'm still very, very much dealing with it, like on a on a daily basis. And um, in fact, I think it kind of it goes in phases, you know. And it come mm. it, there can be times where you're actually feeling it's the same thing with confidence, you know, where you're feeling quite good about yourself. And then for me, um, what I get are sort of like these self hate spirals um, that I that I with time sort of get better at controlling or stopping in their tracks um but they can happen on stage and I have had a couple of concerts recently where they absolutely have happened on stage and then it becomes very hard to manage um so yeah I think uh it's more that I've been asking myself those questions and also trying to talk about them Mm -hmm. openly because I feel that it helps me and it helps other people to know that they're not alone um but I'm definitely not like sorted in any way <laughs> thank you no, seriously though thank you for saying that because that is real like that's not only reality but something that you rarely find someone open enough to admit I suppose there mm. is this whole thing of we can only share when we've de- when we've fixed an issue 
yeah you know, but the reality of of living this kind of life is actually a lot of these issues aren't going to leave immediately and probably never because the sacrifice you make is that that's something you have to deal yeah. with but can you talk about what does the if you don't mind me asking you know what does this self-hate mean for you you know can you explain what that means because it's um something I I can understand for myself maybe but for you exactly what what does that look like what are the thoughts surrounding that yeah I mean they're kind of pretty normal uh self-hate thoughts (laughs) um they can range from you know my my body image um which just like being a woman obviously you're surrounded by Mm -hmm. um people or media telling you how you should look it's not only for women of course but um yeah so body image um uh, just not being good enough being too lazy yeah and I mean it can get quite bad it can get to a stage where I'm like I I just can't play my instrument at all um which I have you know then afterwards I, I sort of reflect on it I'm like you know I can say quite confidently I can play the cello like I, I there I do know I can say with confidence I have a base level like ability of playing the cello um just about yeah <laughs> um no but that's the thing like in those in those spirals um there's just no concept of like reality or being rational and I just like I can't I I feel like I can't play in first position and I don't know where like a g is on the d string or anything like that and sometimes it happens in performance and then I genuinely lose the confidence and I don't know where it is um and it, you know that doesn't happen too often it sounds like a kind of dissoci- kind of dissociation from your true I don't know from like reality it slightly feels like that and I don't know yeah. maybe correct me if I'm wrong but performance the stress around it the adrenaline around it can take us into a body and a state where we really don't feel like ourselves and we don't have the the confidence to say I know where first position is I know how to play this piece you know everything you doubt sometimes whether whether you know what the first note is you know exactly as little as that yeah I think doubt is the is the biggest issue for me and because I I also talked a bit about that often um memory slips is where my my anxiety sort of comes Mm. out and that's all about doubt that's all about going I don't trust that I know I don't trust myself um and I've, I've recently started with a new teacher and she has often said, just, just trust your body, just trust yourself. Um, and that's such, like, it almost makes me cry just like saying that. Cause obviously that's, it's such a difficult thing to do, but it's so, it's so like central to living a happy and balanced life to just, to just trust yourself that mm-hmm. like, that you can do things, but also that it's not really about ability it's just about being centered I think I think dissociation is a really good way of describing it it's like gathering all the bits of like of your uh core that are like floating all around you and trying Mm. to like fly away and you're like no come back like just just stay with me here and and we'll like tackle whatever it is together I'm going a bit abstract now but you know what I mean no I, I, I get it like I really get it um, I really, really do. And I mean, I still haven't actually performed. Actually, I did. I did my final college recital. But since then, I have completely avoided performing and haven't had any opportunities to, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm I'm really kind of 
I'm really listening to you and I'm remembering it, you know, as if it's something I haven't experienced for so long because I just, you know, almost like it's been so debilitating for me in the past that I haven't wanted to go back there. Mm-hmm. You know, what makes you want to go back to that place? Yeah, that's an interesting one because I'm also a bit worried sometimes that because I'm so happy to talk about it that I, it comes across as like, you know, overarchingly negative for me um, mm-hmm. performing. And I, you know, I don't want to give that impression. But for me, the thing that I love so, 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 so much is rehearsing. I love Mm. working with people. I love collaborating with people. I love that process of like creating something. And then I also really love being on stage with other people. And um, I I really enjoy having a a supportive role a lot of the time. Um, You know, as a cellist, you get to do that more often, especially in bigger chamber works where I feel like, I can be there for someone if they need me on stage. Um, and I also enjoy the the special things that happen on stage. You know, sometimes, well, most of the time, unexpected things happen, whether they are bad or good. Um, but I like that kind of, um, yeah, moment of inspiration, I guess, uh, when it happens. Um, and, I mean, then the honest, <laughs> the honest answer is because um that's what my job is and yeah. <laughs> um I I I want to lead a life where you know I can support myself financially and like that's the career I'm doing and I'm kind of hoping that I will get to a stage of of confidence and um you know trust in myself where every performance or like the majority of the performances can be something that I I really look forward to and enjoy doing and can discover things on stage and I think um because I have started so recently with this new teacher um we we in lessons have already like opened up a few possibilities for me and they they seem really exciting but I haven't had enough performance opportunities to sort of try that out because it's going to obviously take a while to get used to that new feeling um but I'm 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 hopeful and excited about the future Mm. yeah one word that keeps coming back to me about all this is is kind of acceptance or neutrality Mm. and it kind of leads back to what you said about you know um your body image and I mean I love this I've really struggled with body positivity I don't know about Mm -hmm. you um but there is this other movement of body neutrality and I wonder Mm. if that's at all the way that you approach your performance anxiety is it sort of like an acceptance rather than expecting it to be gone you know can you talk about that yeah I think acceptance is a fantastic word um I have had this feeling many times where on the concert day I do try to accept that I can't really get any better (laughs) Mm. like it's too late yeah (laughs) Um, and I will just play how I will play (laughs) and that's that you know um so I think absolutely this feeling because I think I talked about this as well before that um it's so hard to balance acceptance and striving to be better. Mm. So, you know, obviously I want to improve. I want to constantly um, refine my playing. I want to get better. Um, But that sort of strong desire can also result in, in never accepting yourself. Um, And I think as, as a human being, but also especially as an artist, it's really hard to, to separate those two things um or to bring them together if that makes any sense Mm. um 
So I think for me, it's all about timing, I guess, when you, when is the time that you strive to be better and when is the time that you accept? Um, and so I guess concert day would be acceptance time. Um, and it's interesting, I think, I mean, I know this is a podcast about music, but um, I, the body image thing is a huge thing for me. Um, and we talk about it a lot in the, in the kaleidoscope group as well. And it's, um, I kind of, put forward this idea of changing the language um in the way that we speak about it so instead of like I am fat or I am this and meaning it negatively to say oh today I'm not feeling very good in my body or today um yeah I'm feeling like yeah I'm not feeling good in my body I think is the right way to yeah so to, take to the identity it. out of it kind of thing exactly mm. um and the neutrality thing is a good point as well because um <laughs> this is I mean I don't know if this is TMI but I'm going to say it anyway no, no, um, never. <laughs> <so> <laughs> during lockdown um I stopped shaving my legs and um I have an 11 year old niece and she was super excited by um by this and she like was really fascinated and she was like oh it's like fluffy baby chicken legs and it's, it's just really sweet Aww. like she got super excited by it and obviously she's yeah as I said she's going to turn 12 soon and um she's about to embark on the whole like fucking puberty horrible no, shit, teenage girl <laughs> exactly exactly and I I decided that I essentially would I hope never shave my legs again mm-hmm. um because I mean I've, I've I then also had the full realization of how stupid it is that it's like disgusting for women to have hairy legs and totally fine for men to have hairy legs um even though we equally have hairy legs like you know um so anything honestly like I, I mean completely that that's like I mean it's, that's it well that's the ultimate <laughs> yeah exactly but I but what I've noticed is that the legs are like the last acceptable thing for a woman mm. um so you know I look around on the tube I don't see a single woman with hairy legs like I just it's not a thing that is done and accepted and there are some people now with body hair activism who are who are um doing that more openly but so um neutrality is a thing that I've really been thinking about with that because I still you know look down and I'm like I don't find that a nice thing to look at because it's so something that I'm so not used to seeing in the media in anywhere um and the place that I've come to is like well that's just the way they look now (laughs) and um to be honest I don't have to look at them if I don't want to and neither does anyone else like it's just it's just the way that they look and um yeah and the main reason I I stick to it is because I want to show my 11 year old niece Aurelia that it's okay to um you know live in the body that you are that you have and not change it (laughs) anyway that is yeah well thank you so much for going into that more (laughs) because I just I also kind of want to talk about body image in classical music because it's like massive you know what do you think needs to change you know how how can we show that you know she he they can dress and be in whatever body you want you know of course you know people want it to be about image you want to look nice on the concert platform Mm. whatever but why has that become the focus um I think honestly I think it is changing in Mm. that I have seen way more people dress in a way that clearly makes them feel comfortable 
and makes them feel powerful. And I, I have been thinking a lot about the way that you dress on stage and um, I was talking to someone and they were like, oh, but I, I, I want to see someone look like they've made a, an effort because it's, you know, it's an occasion. And I can understand where they're coming from with that comment because, you know, we are on a stage and we are kind of presenting something that isn't like day-to-day normal life. And I, I have been thinking, you know, what would happen if like concerts were just all in the clothes that musicians wear day to day? What would that look like? What would that feel like? Um, but at this point, it's still very much an event. But I think people are um, slowly, slowly getting out of the kind of whole all black tuxedo concert dress um, thing. But of course, it's still extremely gendered. Um, I mean, I, I was talking to someone um, who plays in an orchestra and that, you know, I think it's maybe only recently been changed, but I'm sure many orchestras have um, rules for men and rules for women um, instead of just like a blanket, all black. And then within that, you can wear what you want. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's just as, as gendered and um, as, as the rest of the world in, in that way. Um, uh, yeah, it's a it's a tricky one, I think. I'd quite like to go on and talk about the tendency you've spoken about before of musicians to become, you know, identified with their instruments. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe this is something you say has slightly changed for you during the lockdown and maybe even before that. But, you know, especially being someone whose life was taken over by music so young and all of that, how did you detach your worth from your cello or how are you trying to yeah exactly better better that one sorry say. Like, it's I ongoing have, <laughs> I haven't um I think the big pause uh did something for sure um because I basically just existed as a person who wasn't a musician um and I think I also felt that extra because my my sister and her kids like they're not really interested in music and I hope they're not listening but yeah they're just not really interested in that side of my life to be honest Mm. and it's really nice I really enjoy spending time with them because I'm for them I'm just like silly auntie Lalo and like who does silly stuff and like sometimes goes and plays on stage and I remember the first time my 11 year old niece um came and watched me play I don't know how old she was and she was so weirded out by it she was like (laughs) she saw saw a, a big poster and I was playing a concerto and like she like couldn't look at me the same way afterwards because for her I was just this like silly person and then suddenly like a whole room of people were like looking at me and I don't know I think she yeah she got quite freaked out but um but so I yeah I was very much treated as someone who I, I don't know just like as a person without that side of my life um and I think I, you know, I try to invest time in things that aren't music or aren't my music life. So, you know, spending time with friends, going to see movies. Um, I invest a lot of time into non-classical music. Um, and, and so giving, giving those areas of my life the time that they deserve and, and that helps just forming an identity that isn't just I'm a classical cellist. The other thing that I've done recently, which I'm super excited about, is I've started learning jazz piano. Um, And it's a real challenge. Like, obviously, jazz piano is hard, full stop. But 
the thing that's so challenging is being a beginner because it's been so long especially being a beginner in something that that is music and um I am so familiar with and like you know I've listened to jazz for a really long time and I know what good jazz sounds like and like I am so bad <laughs> so bad um but I think it's so so healthy and I've, I've been wanting I've been dreaming to be to be able to improvise and stuff like that for so mm. long but I never started it because I was so afraid of being terrible um and now I've started it and I've started this journey and it's like I have to I just have to accept again here we are at acceptance again I just have to accept the level that I'm at and also that I can improve it and that it will slowly get better and there will be things that I didn't think I was able to do um and that also helps I think with the identity thing because um identity like how how you feel about being a musician is also about like what level you're at and um that you identify with your skills and you identify with um where you're at with your instrument and so starting something completely different but also in the music world is helping me feel just like that yeah cello isn't all that I'm about mm. I'd really love for you to talk a bit about your move to Berlin last summer mm-hmm. um starting at Hans Eisler and you know how that has impacted you um, personally, socially, in musically, in all kind of ways, and and how that is sort of different to maybe the growing up in the UK or going to Cambridge or you know how do they how do how are they different and how have you found your place kind of within the Berlin world? <laughs> yeah, um, so. I mean, obviously, I haven't had like a normal time there. I haven't. I'm still yet to experience Berlin in its normal state. Um, And I I kind of feel like I haven't been there for that long. But in the time that I have been, um, I felt really at home and um, accepted. It's not that I didn't feel accepted in the UK, but uh, I think because there is such a level of, um, I, I, I do want to use the word tolerance, but, or, or just like, you don't, you don't really get involved in how people choose to express themselves. It's just like, okay, mm-hmm. this is a person who chooses to express themselves this way. And that's that. Um, and I think in the UK, there is this sense of like, oh, we're a very tolerant society. But then at the same time, if someone you know, looks a bit different or acts a bit different. Everyone looks, they might not say anything, but there is this feeling of like judgment. And um, Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, I think us like in the UK, we're not as tolerant as we claim to be. Um, Yeah. And I think that, you know, there are these sort of secret ways in which people who grew up in, in England communicate which people, you know, from the outside don't necessarily know. But yes, we might not say like, oh my God, what are you doing? But there's a certain way that you look at someone Mm. or a certain way that you move away from someone that means exactly the same thing. And it can be hidden under the guise of like, oh, we're really tolerant. I didn't say anything today. But it's like, well, you did with your body language, (laughs) you know? Um, And maybe it's just that I'm naive and don't know the ways in which like people in Berlin do those things. And I'm sure there are those ways, but... Um, I've just felt like, yeah, much less judged or um, 
I don't know I, I feel very comfortable there and I'm really excited to sort of mm-hmm. um explore the city more how so, yeah. how is the like the vulnerability between musicians is it is it any different in Germany I'm really curious about that because obviously I've started this podcast because I felt like oh my god that doesn't exist here really like we're made to feel like we have to be so airbrushed and talking about mental illness or you know gender or anything is so kind of stigmatized is that this is that the case also in Berlin or does it feel like you can have more open conversations with people okay so first of all like my my friendship circles are completely international like they're not Mm. um okay really it it, you know it doesn't really make a difference uh where where they're from or even where they're based but I think the main reason that you might experience that feeling of like you know in the UK that we don't accept that um is that the it's so difficult to be a musician in the UK there is no job security there is Mm. no sense of like oh I'm going to be okay so it's just like you have to fight for it much more which means the vulnerability is so much more difficult you know if it's super hard to get employed you're not going to make it harder for yourself by saying actually I have really severe performance anxiety but please employ me anyway you know Mm. like I think that's it's just so so hard Um, and you know most people I know who work in the UK freelance and have like a million different jobs and are constantly like yeah trying to to make ends meet and stuff like that so it's not um I think there's just a lot more job security in Germany and you know you can get an orchestral position and know that you have a salary and that you're safe and that you're going to be looked after um and there's just uh there isn't as much of that in the UK and I think that might be why um vulnerability is 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 more difficult to talk about but I'm not sure I'm not sure it's more common in in Germany I'm, I'm I wouldn't know but I somehow don't think so um but I think what's definitely happening in in our generation is is people are talking about it more and I, I've been so so lucky and so happy to be working with the Kaleidoscope Chamber Collective mm-hmm. because I feel like that's part of our identity is to be really open about those things and talk about them in rehearsal as well um, and I notice sometimes when I rehearse with other people, it's like, oh God, I can't be like, I feel really <laughs> shit right now, <laughs> you know, or um, so we're, we're ridiculously open with each other and it makes for such a, a wonderful musical experience because I know that I can just share with them when I'm not feeling confident and um, they'll understand. Oh my gosh, that is honestly like the dream though, isn't it? Like, it that really is, is. Beautiful. Can you talk about, you know, what you have got coming up with them and sort of in general, you know, what do your next few months look like? Um, so we've got some exciting recording projects coming up. Um, obviously, we just released um, our first recording, American Quintets, oh, yeah. um, which, yeah, I'm, I'm super, super proud of and happy about. Um, and we've got a couple more coming up in October, I think. Um, and well, that's the main project coming up in October. Um, and I don't know if you're allowed, we're allowed to talk about it yet. I have no idea. With these <laughs> um, but anyway, so that's happening. And um, yeah, I think we're just planning world domination, really. Absolutely. <laughs> <Yes, I laughs> um, <do>, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I'm really, I'm super lucky to be a part of that group because um, Tom and Elena are so proactive. And so is Rosie, actually. Rosie Ventures. Um, and I'm really not. So I feel like I'm just riding their wave um, and, and feeling super lucky about it. Yeah. They are super amazing. Yeah. Like, ah, it just, it really feels like 
things are changing for the better. And I just, especially with this ensemble and you explaining, you know, the way you, the way you rehearse and how mm-hmm. open you're able to be, it just, mm-hmm. it does also makes me kind of emotional because I'm like, oh my gosh, can you, can you imagine this happening kind of 10 years ago even? Maybe yeah. not. I mean, maybe it did happen, but not on a kind of concert standard, like real high professional level. Yeah. But I think what Elena's so good at saying is that actually vulnerability is what makes us better musicians, ultimately. Completely. Yeah. But it's also, it's not, I mean, it may not even do that, but it's just like, that's what we're all, it's, that's what we're all feeling. And I think the more I live life, and but I've, because my parents are, um, well, psychologists. So <laughs> they've, my, one thing my mum has always told me is that everyone feels like they're smaller than you are in that you, when you as in one, when one lives life, you, you are in lots of situations where you think, oh, that person thinks they're better than me or like I'm worse than that person. Mm. But if once you understand that the way that you think in your head is how pretty much everyone else is thinking, like 99.9% of the time other people are worrying about how they're coming across yeah. you know um mm. and so I've had so many conversations with people where I'll be like oh I was like I was really worried that maybe you took what I said in this way and then they'll be like oh no but I was really worried that you know and then, and then yeah. you kind of have this conversation where like oh god we're both like tiny vulnerable beings who are like really scared about life and um and once you kind of see that and accept that then it's kind of like you can approach life in a slightly different way where you don't have to constantly worry about what other people are thinking about you because you know that they're probably more busy with themselves like yeah. you know and you take more risks as well I feel yeah absolutely because yeah you you suddenly see life just as more I don't want to say game in the way of it being frivolous but it's a game in terms of everyone is on the same everyone is intrinsically very similar <laughs> you know I, yes, I think about yeah. that a lot and actually I've been watching a lot of documentaries based in prisons because it's one of my YouTube polls you have know, had many yes <laughs> we're on to prisons at the moment <laughs> yeah um and I'm just watching this and I'm like oh my god I am so similar to so many of these people yeah like that is so kind of both scary but also really reassuring because yeah. I'm like, I would put myself, you know, way, you know, way more secure than them or whatever. Yeah. You know, the sort of British judgmental side. But actually, yeah. at our very core of our beings, oh, my gosh, they're talking about wanting a hug. I want a hug. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's what we want. We want a hug and a friend and like <laughs> someone to tell us that we're doing OK. <laughs> nice food. And... Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh, Laura, I literally like buzzing. It's been so amazing to talk yeah, to you. Thank, thank you. you so much. I feel like we could go on for hours, couldn't we? <laughs> I know. I know there were a couple of questions I didn't cover, but I'm just like to know what doesn't matter. We covered so yeah. much of amazing things and I just can't tell you how grateful I am that you are here. Aww. That's all I have to say. Thank you for being here. Thank you for taking up space and opening your life and your inner world and the, all those parts of yourself which Oh, I'm just I'm so thrilled that you are because the amount of people that you're going to help through doing that is just incredible so thank you so so much yeah, thank you you're gonna make me cry yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well good thank luck with you. all your projects as well yeah, and also thank you for starting this podcast oh I'm not going anywhere don't worry <laughs> <laughs> I'm, go- I'm gonna try and do some world domination with you nice nice <laughs> that sounds great <laughs>